So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll begin in verse 4. The Apostle Paul says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And you can be seated. So we are slowly working through this section, talking about what these gifts are, these spiritual gifts are that the Holy Spirit has blessed the church with. Remember, the the broader context is just the unity within the church that the Holy Spirit brings because of these gifts. Um, but we're, we're slowing down a little bit and unpacking them one by one uh, to understand that if these gifts are for the purpose of building the church up, what exactly are these gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to us? These are all awesome. These are all amazing. These are all powered by God, the Holy Spirit. I've mentioned before that this is not an exhaustive list. We see other gifts uh, that the Holy Spirit gives in other places in the, the New Testament especially. Um, but um, these seem to be tailored to the gifts that the, the Corinthians were struggling with or had contention over. So what we have here is a list, uh, list excuse me, of nine gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to individual believers for the upbuilding of the church. And as I mentioned several times, there's some discussion as to which ones are still in operation today. Some people say that all of these gifts are in full operation, just like they were in the early days of the church. Some people say, no, it doesn't seem like the, maybe the more miraculous gifts are still given. Um, I, I've mentioned before, my own position is 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 closer on the, the, the cessationist side, but not quite cessationist. Um, the, the cool kids in uh, evangelical world would, would call me open but cautious. I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, I am open to the Holy Spirit still working in these ways, although I'm very cautious in, in claiming that they are... Um, these these are actually um, things that the Holy Spirit still does. Um, and just to be very clear this morning, you're going to see more of the, the cautious side than the open side uh, as we talk about these gifts. And I think that you will see why in just a little bit. I say that because on the one hand, we do not want to attribute things to God that are not genuinely from God. We have to be very careful about that. There are plenty of deceivers out there who claim that they are doing the work of God when, in fact, they are not doing the work of God. You go turn on TBN, and pretty much anyone on there, I can almost guarantee you, is not doing the work of God. And yet they claim they're doing the work of God. They claim they are preaching uh, what God wants. They claim that they're doing miracles and healing and telling your future. You used to, you used to call the psychic hotline for that kind of stuff. And now you just turn on TBN and they're promising the same thing, um, just more money. Um, so, so we don't want to attribute things to God that are not from God. On the other hand, we don't want to insult the Holy Spirit if he is actually working in a particular way by saying, no, that's not really actually from God, the Holy Spirit. Maybe, maybe we're just uncomfortable with some of the things that the Holy Spirit does. I mean, just imagine 
we, we rewind the clock 2,000 years, and we are actually in the church in Corinth, and these things are really going down. Like, there's literally speaking in tongues going on. There's really prophecy going on. There's really words of knowledge, words of wisdom going down in the church. And I think a lot of us, we kind of go, ooh, that'd be, that'd be weird. No, that'd be really awesome because the Holy Spirit is literally working for the upbuilding of the church. That's a good thing. And so we should celebrate when the Holy Spirit really is at work. These gifts have been given by the Spirit to bring unity to the body of Christ. So we saw three gifts last week. Just a quick, just a quick overview. We saw a word of wisdom. We saw a word of knowledge. And then we saw the gift of faith. We saw those in verse eight. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Verse nine to another faith by the same Spirit. Remember that no one is 100% sure what a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge are with any sort of certainty. Most people believe that a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom are a spontaneous work of the Spirit to either give someone or a group of people an incredible amount of wisdom in a difficult situation or maybe to give a person uh, knowledge about someone or something that they did not find out through natural means. That, that, that's the, the best that we can understand. And faith is just that, someone who has a super abundance of trust in the Lord to provide an act. So those, those are the first three. Next up in the list of, of in verse 9 is uh, the gifts of healing. Verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Now before I dive into this gift, let me just start by saying that God is a healer. That God loves to heal. That, that's, that's on his mind and it's something that he desires to do. We see through all the Bible that people are miraculously healed. And who heals them? God heals them. It's a work of God to heal people. Let me just give you a little list. So, and this is not exhaustive. This, most of this is in the Old Testament. God healed Abraham and Sarah. He healed their broken bodies in their old age to have children. He healed Abimelech from disease that, that had just sort of plagued his whole town. Um, and he healed barrenness. God healed Moses' sister Miriam after she attempted to usurp Moses' authority God healed Naaman, the Syrian general, from leprosy, if you remember, by bathing seven times in the Jordan River. God healed Nebuchadnezzar from that crazy goat situation that had come upon him where his nails grew out, remember, and he was, he was just grazing in the field. Well, God healed him and brought him back to mental health. God raised the widow's son's life through Elisha. God healed Hezekiah from his deathbed, if you remember, and he gave him 15 more years of life. So God heals. Jesus comes on the scene, and I don't know if you've read the Gospels lately, but Jesus' ministry is basically one of nonstop healing. That's just what Jesus does everywhere he goes. Matthew 4.23 says he preached the Gospel, and he healed every disease and every affliction, every single one of them, to the fullest extent. Matthew 9.35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and all the villages, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Matthew 14.14, 14, there was a great crowd and he healed them all. This is what Jesus did. This was his heart toward the people. And, and he heals all kinds of stuff. The gospels report that Jesus healed all kinds of things. He healed withered hands, people that had messed up hands. He healed blindness mutinous, people who couldn't talk, 
lameness, people who couldn't walk, demon-possessed people, chronic menstrual bleeding, scoliosis, fever, generic sickness, just just infirmity. Luke uh, 7.21 says he healed plagues, plagues that were going on, leprosy, paralysis, and of course Jesus raised people from the dead. Matthew says that Jesus' healing ministry was a fulfilled prophecy from Isaiah 53.4 that said, Messiah will take our illnesses and bear our diseases. There's a lot of people who want to just regulate that completely to spiritual terms, that that's only spiritual stuff, that he only took our, our spiritual infirmities and our spiritual diseases. But Matthew makes the connection very clear. The work of Jesus in healing the people is a fulfillment of that. That's part of the work that Messiah came to do. So during the time of Jesus and even afterward, the apostles were also able to heal in great ways. How did they do that? It was through the power of God. It was God working through them to heal people. Listen, listen to Deuteronomy 32, 39. I love this. He says, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. God says that healing belongs to me. I do that. I do whatever I want with whoever I want because I own it all. I'm sovereign over all of it. And we know that healing is on God's mind because in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no more death and there's no more dying. There's none of it. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. No more mourning or crying or pain. Get, get this, you guys. This is, this is really, I, I don't know where you're at with this, but when I was first a Christian, I thought, well, God's, God's real plan is for my soul. I mean, who cares about the body? It's for my soul. No, it's for your body as well. The plan here is resurrection of your literal physical body. God's salvation is for your soul, but it includes your physical body ultimately as well. And you have to understand that ultimately in glory, the glorification of your body means that one day there will be no more aches. There will be no more pains, no more 15 prescriptions, no more doctors, no more undiagnosed diseases, no more chronic thorns in the flesh, no more weariness, no more tiredness. No more aches. I say all that because we need to understand that God has an eternal heart to heal people. To pour out that grace and mercy. And, by the way, believers and unbelievers experience the precious grace of healing from Jesus. You remember the ten lepers that got healed? How many of them came back and praised Jesus? Just one. The other nine didn't praise him. But they experienced that miraculous healing as well. God's grace is so much that he's willing even to heal all kinds of people. And think about this. Of all the people that Jesus healed throughout, I wonder how many were there shouting for his crucifixion. People who had actually been healed by him. I'm sure there were some. There had to have been. Because there were all kinds of people who said they believed in Jesus and they were shouting for his crucifixion too. And because God has a heart of healing, Jesus never rebuked anyone for coming to him for healing. Just read through the Gospels. There's no one. Jesus is like, nah, not doing it. Not you. Everyone. He healed them all. Everyone who came to Jesus for healing, God healing. 
He was so committed to healing that he actually had to sneak away and get a little bit of rest because he'd be up all hours of the night laying his hands on people and healing them from their afflictions. He, he had to go sneak off, but he delighted to do it. But there is no time in Jesus's life, at least that I can recall, that he actually turned away someone who asked for healing. He healed everyone who came. And interestingly, he even healed some people who didn't come. He healed them from afar based on the faith of someone else. That's how powerful Jesus is. That's how committed Jesus is to healing. So when we ask God to heal, right, like prayer time, raise your hand, we've got a little something going on. God isn't up in heaven, you guys, rolling his eyes. Like, pfft, really? You understand that if Jesus were right here and we were transported back 2,000 years, he'd be like, all right, I got you. He'd stay up late just to get you healed. Why? Because that's on his heart. That's on his mind. God has a heart for healing. So I say all of that to bring us to the gift of healing. The gift of healing. Does this still exist? And I have to tell you that I think that the vast, vast majority of what is called healing today is not healing at all. I really don't believe that it is. You see the, the faith healers on TV, Benny Hinn, Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, Jesse Duplantis, T.D. Jakes. Most of these people on TV are liars, you guys. They're charlatans who will take your money and promise something that is not there. They're all fakes. They're all heretical anyway. So God's not going to bless them with a miraculous gift like true healing. Now, let me just say that when we're talking about the gift of healing, we need to be specific. Okay? We're talking about the gift of healing. So let's be specific. So, so when we're, we're talking about the gift, we're not talking about praying for healing. Because okay? we can all pray for healing. We're all encouraged to pray for healing. But that's different than the spiritual gift that we see in the Bible. I 100% believe that God can and does answer prayer for healing. I've seen it in my own life. I know that it happens. He does heal people that way. But that is different than what the New Testament describes as the gift of healing. And, and I, I think this is an important distinction because a lot of people want to say that the gift of healing is simply praying for healing. And if you have, just have enough faith, then your prayer will come true. And that's just not what we see from the biblical testimony. There are times when prayer is needed for healing. Remember, there's an instance in the, the book of Luke where the disciples... Uh, they're, they're asked by a guy whose son has all these maladies. He's actually demon-possessed, and, and, and they can't cast it out. And, and so finally, they come to Jesus, and Jesus says, with this one, prayer is required. you got to pray on, on this one. And you say, well, see, um, you know, there's, there's an example. But first of all, that's not healing technically. That's actually exorcism technically. That's what we're talking about. And second, even Jesus' own words seem to indicate that most of the time, you won't need to pray for this to happen. That the, the person who can cast out a demon will just be able to do it with his gift. It's the rare exception that you would need to fast and pray in order to do it. So I just don't think praying for healing is the same as the gift of healing. We're also not talking about a natural course of healing either, like a doctor or a nurse or vitamins or essential oils or any of those things. Doctors and nurses can heal people, but they're using natural means. That's not the gift of healing as is described in the Bible. The Bible is a supernatural means of bringing healing to people. 
So that, that's what we're talking about. It's the miraculous work of the Spirit to heal someone physically through another person of some disease. That's what we're talking about. So I told you that my position on the more miraculous gifts is cautious. And again, I, I think I'd say that I'm very, very cautious about somebody claiming that they have the gift of healing, mostly because we simply don't see this happening in the same way that we see it in the New Testament. And what's interesting is even my friends who are way more on the charismatic side than I am, they readily admit that healing like what Jesus and the apostles did, if it still happens today, happens at a much more rare pace than it did back in the early church. So I am open, but I'm very cautious. Could the Spirit still work in these ways? Absolutely. Um, and, by the way, there is real evidence throughout the world, not just like hearsay kind of evidence, or real evidence that there have been people who have used this gift. Um, but I will also say that when we're talking about other gifts, like teaching and mercy and administration, those kind of things, you see those a thousand or ten thousand times more often than you see the gift of healing. I've never seen anybody who has the gift of healing. I've prayed for healing, and God has answered that in pretty amazing ways. But I've never seen somebody with the gift. Now, let me make a couple of observations on the text here. Uh, because my definition for healing used to be something like the ability for someone to heal anyone at any time. I think that's just a little too broad. Because the problem with that is that's not even what the text says. So, so look at verse 9. Notice what it says. And we'll also look down at verses 28 and 29. So verse 9, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit. Look down to verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Does Paul say that there's the gift of healing? No. He says there's the gifts, plural, of healing. In fact, that's the only way he describes it. He never calls it the gift singular of healing, that one person can go heal anyone, anytime, anywhere. He says there are gifts, plural, of healing. And to be honest, that's not even what he says in the original language. The ESV and the NIV actually miss the original grammar. I don't usually give a shout out to the New King James or to the NAS, but they nail it here. It's literally gifts, plural, of healings, plural. You say, well, what difference does that make? Well, the difference is that there is no one uniform gift of healing, according to Paul. There's all kinds of varieties of gifts of healing. The, the only person who had one uniform gift of healing, who could heal, heal anyone at any time in any place, was who? Jesus. He was the only one. Every other example, it seems to be limited in some way. In some way, even the apostles, though they had some amazing abilities, were limited in their scope of healing. Paul could not heal Timothy from his stomach ailments. Remember that in 1 Timothy 5? He's like, hey, drink a little wine, because I know you got stomach problems. Well, Paul, why don't you just heal him? You got the gift. Apparently, he couldn't heal stomach problems. What about Epaphroditus? He was near death. Why didn't Paul just heal him? Why was that a big deal? Why pray for him? If you just heal him, those things happen... And yet, at the end of the book of Acts, which have probably been after that, Paul goes to the island of Malta, and he heals everybody on the island of every disease. So sometimes he can do it, and sometimes he can't. 
Sometimes it's limited, sometimes it's expansive. It just depends on how the Spirit is working. And here it seems clear that we have a plurality of gifts within the broader category of healing. So just to sort of give you a feel, like, like, like if we were in the Corinthian church, maybe you go to John if you got eye problems. Like John seems to be able to heal eye problems. And you go to Jane if you've got backaches. Mary handles the headaches and the muteness. Peter, Peter, we're hoping Peter comes because he can really do a work. Paul, when he was here last, didn't do a whole lot, right? And so you go to different people, almost like you go to a different specialist. That, that seems to be the feel of the New Testament, that no one person except Jesus could heal all things at all times, though some people, it seems, could heal some things specifically, at, at least when the Spirit willed. This is also interesting. It also appears that local church elder teams often had a, a sort of quasi-ability to heal. We won't unpack it, but if you go to James chapter 5, uh, you don't need to turn there, just jot it down. James talks about people who are sick in the congregation and they call for the elders of the church to come pray over them. There does seem to be a connection between these people might be in sin and their, and their ailment, Right, But the elders come and they pray, and it seems as though there's an expectation that God will work more powerfully or maybe more often through the elders of the church in this particular situation. He never calls it a gift, but there is some sort of anticipation that God will work if this person is so bad that the elders have to come to him. He can't come to the elders. The elders have to go to him. He's not calling a doctor. They're calling the pastors to come and pray. Why? For healing. And that God will likely answer this. And by the way, as, as, as an elder, we've, we've poured oil on people's heads and we've prayed over them. Uh, there have been times when God miraculously does heal. Well, I, I don't know about miraculous. He heals, whatever. And sometimes when he doesn't, it's up to him. It's his will. By the way, I, I, I do want to encourage us to pray for healing. We really should. And just to be really clear... Pray like we mean it, like we're actually praying to the God who raises people from the dead, not just like, oh, God, um, maybe if you could heal this thing, that'd be great. Oh, you of little faith. Oh, me of little faith. A lot of times we pray to God for healing and we're like, yeah, it's just not going to happen. So we don't really believe it. Rather than believing that God does have a heart to heal and could actually heal this person. So to be clear, I don't think that praying for healing is the same as the gift of healing. Uh, it's just not the gift that we see in scripture. Uh, my position used to be that healing no longer exists at all because if that person really did have it, they just go down the sacred heart, clear the whole place out, and that would be the end of it. Now I'm not really sure that's a fair statement, but I will say, I think if someone actually had the gift of healing, that we would see that manifest. We see it manifest in the congregation because that would be a blessing to the body of Christ who often has ailments. Okay, the fifth gift is working of miracles. Working of miracles. We also see that in verse 9. He says, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit. Verse 10, to another the working of miracles. And he reiterates the same thing in verses 28 and 29 again. He says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? 
Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? And by the way, those are rhetorical questions. And in the the original language, they all assume that the answer is no. In English, we kind of have to to, to know which way the rhetorical question is going. In the Greek, it actually makes it very specific. The answer to all of these is no. Not all speak in tongues. Not all do miracles. That sort of thing. All right, so what is a, what is a miracle? Uh, in a little bit, I'm going to take us on a little adventure through uh, the New Testament. We're going to be skipping around a little bit because I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, we, we use the word miracle in a very loose way. Let, let me give you two ways that we use it. Um, that, that is not what the Bible is talking about when it says miracle. So I'm, so I'm going to call these two um, providence. One is providence, and one is a non-repeating miracle. So there's providence and a non-repeating miracle. So providence usually is the term that we use uh, sort of in a non-technical sense, right? Someone Someone is in a car accident, and the car is just like totaled, and the person gets out and walks away, and we go, "Thank God that was a that was a miracle, right? They, they they didn't have a scratch on them, so my flight got delayed, and by some miracle, I made it to the next gate in time, and I got on the plane just in time. The Seahawks are not getting to the postseason except for a miracle, and I don't think Russell Wilson has the gift of miracles." What we're actually describing when we say those kind of things, you guys, is, is not technically miraculous as, as the Bible defines it. Okay? These are, these are what we would call good providence. It's God's good providence. Is God in charge of those situations? Absolutely he is. But, but we would call these providential situations. These are not situations that anybody works. Remember? If we're talking about the gift of miracles, it's something that somebody works. And does to someone else. The situations that I all, I just described are not things that people work. They're, they're just sort of events that happen and they come together in a good way, um, for our benefit. So we would, we would call those God's good providence, or yeah, God's good providence. You're behind on the water bill and a check comes in for just the amount that you need. That's, that's God's good providence. The second time of miracle that is often described in the Bible and is often called a miracle is something that I'll call a non-repeating miracle, a non-repeating miracle. It's, it's, a, it's a miracle that's kind of a one and done or, or, or it's very specific to a time. A lot of these are done by Jesus, right? So Jesus' first miracle is turning water into wine. We have no history, no evidence, no biblical anything that anyone else has ever done that ever. Just Just nothing. We, we, we've never, we've never seen that. We never see anyone else doing that in the book of Acts. Jesus walking on water is a miracle. We don't see the apostles doing that. We don't see anybody in the early church doing that. It's sort of a, a one and done. Jesus calms the wind and the sea. That's, that, that is a miracle. In fact, that, that inspires awe in the disciples to worship him as the son of God. It, it is miraculous. Feeding 5,000. The mass resurrections that happened after Jesus died in Jerusalem is a miracle. Stephen in Acts 7 calls the 10 plagues that Moses rained down through the hand of God miracles. And they were. But but we don't see somebody coming in and going, all right, unless you repent, I'm sending in the gnats. You just don't see it happening. It's non-repeating. It's a one and done kind of a wonder thing. These were massive demonstration of God's power. But, but the super important part here is that they are not repeated by anybody. 
We don't see the apostles doing these kind of miracles. Nothing like that at all. We don't see the early church doing anything like that. Nowhere in Acts is it recorded that Christians walked on water, turned water into wine, or calmed weather. About the closest that we get is Peter and Paul both raised somebody from the dead, and it's and it's rare. It's it's re- it's not a it's not a regular basis kind of thing. So again, when we're talking about the gift of miracles that, that might be common in the church, we're not talking about favorable situations. We're not talking about one and dones. We're talking about somebody who can do something on a regular basis for the benefit of the body of Christ. That's what we're we're talking about here. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of miracles. The word here literally in the Greek is powers, plural, powers. And just like miracles, or excuse me, just like healings we, we saw earlier, it's actually the workings, plural, of powers, plural. So it seems like maybe there's some variety going on in, in what this is talking about. Um, and by the way, that shouldn't surprise us. When we see the gift of tongues in the next section, we'll look at Acts 2. And the, the gift of tongues is manifested in different ways. Not everybody speaks the same language. Some people speak this language. Some people speak that language. Some people speak this language. And there's like 13 or 16 different languages mentioned in Acts chapter 2, all under the heading, the gift of tongues, plural. So, so there's variety even within this. We see this in teaching, right? I, I'm a teacher, but I don't teach like John Piper or John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul or Charles Spurgeon. We have, we have different kinds of gifts, so there's variety. Here's the interesting thing. As I was studying this passage, I was kind of surprised how little information people give about the gift of miracles. They, they, either, they either just kind of like, yep, miracles happen, and you're like, what happened? Like, can you flesh that out for me a little bit? Or it's really vague. Or it's, well, by faith, people did these 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 great things but the commentators really um don't touch on it a whole lot so so let me let me tip you tip to my hand to you and then i'm going to show you why i believe what it is okay i think the gift of miracles is the gift of exorcism it is specifically the gift of casting out demons because there is one thing that we see all through the book of acts when this word is used and that is the casting out of demons. And there's one thing that we see also alongside healing and preaching in Jesus' ministry. It's the casting out of demons. And what we're going to see is this exact wording is often used in relation to the casting out of demons. Over and over and over. It's the ability, I think miracles, is the ability to exert power over demons and demonic activity. It's usually casting out demons from harassing someone. So let me, let me show you why. We're going to go on a little, little treasure hunt here. So Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Now, before I read this passage, let, let me say there, there are three words that you'll, that you'll see over and over again, especially in the book of Acts. You'll, you'll see two together. So there's miracle, there's sign, and there's wonder. Miracle, sign, and wonder. You'll see sign and wonder often often together. And I think in the book of Acts, they are always together. They did signs and wonders. They're, they're always together. So, so let me just unpack that for a second. So a miracle tells us that it is not natural. It's not natural. This is something that is done by the power of God through someone else. It's God breaking into the world. And... 
I think it's God breaking into the world against the powers of darkness. It's God's power used through someone to fight against the power of Satan and the power of darkness. There's a spiritual battle going on, and we see this spiritual battle most prominently in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. There's, there's like this, this power showdown going on, and it's clear from the Gospels and the book of Acts that God's winning. He's on the winning side. So there's miracle. It's not natural. There's also wonder. Wonder. This indicates its effect on people. When, when something is a wonder, it's not just like, oh, that was kind of interesting. Huh. Like a card trick. You know, a little sleight of hand. You're like, oh, well, I know you don't have the gift of miracles, but that was really interesting. No, like, like when this happens, it's jaw-dropping. It is amazing. It's like the guy who's, who's like at the, the tombs of the Garadines, right? He's been there for decades, and he's, he's so strong, he's breaking chains. All of a sudden, Jesus comes, casts the legion out, and here's this dude in his right mind, and you're like, what just happened? It's jaw-dropping. It is a wonder, and it's not something that's um, natural. It's also a sign, so miracle, wonder, and a sign. The sign indicates that its purpose is to point to a greater reality. Usually, the reality that it's showing is that the preacher is, is preaching God's word. He's done something that is irrefutably miraculous. So the message that he's also preaching is irrefutably true. That's usually the case. Okay, so those are the three words. You're in Mark 6. Look down at verses 17, or excuse me, 7 uh, through 13. And he called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. Verse 9, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. So two things to keep in mind here. First, this was amazing power. They have been given extraordinary power. They've been given a, a, something of, of Jesus's power in order to do this in a power over the spiritual world. Um, again, there's this, there's this cosmic battle that's having a showdown as the pages of the New Testament unfolds. Um, and part of this power is the Spirit showing that Christ has come and he conquers over demonic power. And here's another little interesting tidbit. Luke's version of this in Luke chapter 10 is that there were actually 72 total that went out. You remember that? So there is the 12, but there's another 60 that go out as well. All of them had the same power. So it's not just Jesus. It's not just the apostles. It's for all of his disciples, at least those he had chosen to go do this. So that gives us a little hint that these miracles are demon possession. But here's the gravy. Here's the connection between this demon casting out stuff and calling it a power. Notice Herod's reaction in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these 
powers, these miraculous powers, it's the same word, are at work in him. So Herod had already slaughtered John the Baptist. He'd already been put to death. And now he's hearing about this guy named Jesus. And he's going, oh, demons are getting cast out. It's got to be that John guy because John was a godly guy. So, so Herod had never met Jesus. And what he ascribes to this mass exorcism that Jesus is doing is dunamis, power. That's what he hears. Well, that's what Paul says the gift is. There's a gift of powers. Well, what kind of powers? I think it's these kind of powers. Turn over a couple of chapters to Mark chapter 9. By the way, it's just really kind of interesting that even the unbelieving world recognized that Jesus had power over spiritual forces. Herod's an unbeliever. He never comes to faith in Jesus. And he realizes that Jesus has amazing power. So Mark chapter 9, down in verses 38 through 41. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one is able for no one who does a mighty work, a mighty power, literally in the original in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So again, we've got power connected directly to exorcism. It's the power of God working through. We'll give Luke chapter 6. Next book over, Luke chapter 6. And here we see, I love this, because here we see this emphasis on power. That, that there is that there is spirit, Holy Spirit power, if we want to call it that, working through Jesus to do these things. It's not just that he has authority over the demons, though he does, because he's God. And it's not just that he has some sort of nebulous power, but there's this power that comes through the, from the Spirit, through Jesus, out to other people. So if you look at Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, you'll see that. And he came down with them and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and he healed them all. So, so again, this power is, is just flowing through Jesus it's the Spirit's power to conquer over the demonic forces. It's power. It's the same word that, that the apostles have. It's the same power that those other 60 disciples have. And it seems like it's the same power that the early church had. Here's the interesting thing. Sometimes healing physically and demonic activity are linked. Okay? Sometimes we'll see an exorcism and they'll call it healing. Why? Because I think the presentation of the demonic activity is a medical presentation. So look over at chapter 13 of Luke. Here we see Jesus cast out a demon, but the language that is used is the language of healing. Oh, aren't they, aren't they, 
Aren't they different gifts? Or are they the same? Why is healing used rather than powers or miracle? And I think, again, the reason is because the presenting issue is a medical issue, right? So, so let, me, let me read this. So chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Verse 11, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And he said these things, as he said these things, excuse me, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. We'd say she needed back surgery or a chiropractor or some scoliosis treatment, wouldn't we? That would be our description of her. It was actually Satan binding her up, bending her over. This, this demonic oppression was, was shown through a medical thing. And, and this is where I think the gift of healing and even the gift of exorcism are a little bit different. So, so maybe you take her, you know, this, this daughter of, of Abraham, this, this, this lady, maybe you take her to, to, to John, whom we mentioned, you know, 30 minutes ago, who's the gift of healing and he does backs and John tries to heal her and he can't. Why? It's not a medical issue. Maybe you need to go take her to Joey. And Joey has the gift of miracles, of casting out demons. That's actually what she needs because that's the real deal. Jesus makes it clear it's not necessarily a medical issue, though it's a medical presentation. It's a spiritual issue that's going on. Look over at Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, we see that this power has now been transferred to the church. Not just Jesus, not just the apostles. This is the prayer of the early church, Acts 4, verse 30, as persecution is mounting. Actually, we'll start in verse 29. So they're all praying, persecution is happening. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. The wonders are being performed in the whole church. If you look down in chapter 5, verse 12, it seems like at least in Jerusalem, it's primarily through the apostles. Look at verse chapter 5, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So we could say, well, maybe it's just the apostles and, and that the apostles are gone, so, so that's died out. The problem is, look over at chapter 6, verse 8. You got Stephen. He was one of the seven, remember, to, that would help distribute the, the, the food to the widows. 
And, and Stephen is, maybe we would call him like a proto-deacon, something like that. He's not ever called a deacon under the 7R, but they're, they're doing that kind of function. But in chapter 6, verse 8, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. What was he doing? It seems like he was casting out demons. That's what he was doing. He had that ability. He's not an apostle. He's, he's a, a proto-deacon. And this goes on all through the book of Acts. Signs and wonders, signs and wonders, signs and wonders. In chapter 14, you don't have to turn there. Paul did signs and wonders in Iconium. Chapter 15, Barnabas and Paul are relaying to the Jerusalem church all the signs and wonders they did all throughout the Roman world. It seems that a lot of what the apostles did was cast out demons. Again, this is the invasion of God into the pagan world to show that the resurrected Jesus has authority and power over Satan and over the demonic world. And the demons just come out. They, they, they just have no power. It's, it's not like there's this arm wrestling. They, they're just gone. You remember in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, you've got Paul in the city of Philippi, and there's this demon-possessed girl who can tell fortunes, and she's following Paul around, and it actually says Paul got annoyed with her, and so he just cast the demon out. And it was gone, and she could no longer tell fortunes. You remember this? And the owners were upset, and they threw him in prison, and the Philippian jailer got converted because he had heard Paul singing hymns at the bottom of the jail, all because he cast out a demon. This was the amazing thing that happened. I mean, there was a riot that took place over demon, uh, over, over casting out this demon. Romans 15, powers, the power of signs and wonders have authenticated the gospel message everywhere Paul has gone, is what he says. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says the signs of the apostles are signs and wonders and mighty works. Casting out demons. Turn over to Acts 19. This is cool. If you haven't read Acts in a while, you should. Notice the connection here between miracle, power, again, and, and demon possession. So Acts 19, verses 11 through 20. It says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. That's cool, right? Like, go touch the napkin and go take it home because it's got Holy Spirit power on it. Like, and then boom, like, that's crazy, you guys. But that was actually happening. That's not like the weird Benny Hinn made up stuff. Right? This is actually going down in the real church. This is the kind of power that there was. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, verse 13, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. So there's a whole background. Apparently there were Jewish exorcists who lived at the time who they knew that there were demons and they were trying to cast people out they're not doing it so well and they're like man paul over there's having some success you know yelling out jesus or something and so we're going to try that they're like well we're we're pragmatists so let's give it a shot see what happens well what does happen verse 14 seven sons of a jewish high priest named skiva were doing this but the evil spirit answered them jesus i know and paul i recognize but who are you and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This is, this, this is 
spiritual battle going on, you guys. Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase mightily. Do you realize that Paul was famous among demons? Like in the, in the, the weird underground spiritual world of demonic activity, they're like, oh yeah, we know about Paul. Don't go anywhere near about Paul. You we don't know, but Paul we know, and Jesus we know for sure. Right? Paul is infamous amongst demons. This is how prevalent his ministry was. And if you think about it, it's actually the testimony of the demons about what Paul is doing that causes everybody to come to faith in Jesus. Isn't that the weirdest thing? It's the demons who are like, I don't know who you are, and so we whip some all, and everybody's like, oh, this is real. This is real. I'm turning to Jesus before the spirit dude whips me. It's actually his testimony that causes this to happen. Spiritual warfare thing is legit, and that guy was a faker. Speaking of fakers, turn to one last verse in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this is where the warning comes in. This is where the discernment needs to enter in. Does the Holy Spirit still give this gift today? Well, well, let me tell you, I've seen some pretty crazy stuff in my life. I've seen some legit, crazy, demon-possessed people. I believe in demon possession for sure. I've seen people controlled by demons. It's crazy. It's weird. It's unpredictable. I've never cast out a demon. I've never seen anybody cast out a demon. I've seen people it, it, who are controlled by something, demonic, satanic, whatever you want to call it, it eventually just subsides. Yeah, I mean, if you go, we, we went through 1 Samuel, right? And, and part of the recipe for Saul was just playing nice music, right? So sometimes there are natural means for this to subside. The question is, can we have power over it? First, it doesn't appear that even in the early church, every person had this gift. Do all have miracles? Answer, no. Not all have this gift. And second, we need to be very careful about who might claim to have this power because it seems as though this power is something that Satan can falsify for his own advantage, that he can do that. Look at this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's already happening. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Nobody knows what that means. Verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one, we call him the man of sin or maybe the antichrist. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
How does the man of lawlessness deceive people? By false signs and false powers, false wonders. Well, what did we just say those things are? Exorcisms. So the spirit has power over demons. You know who else does too? Satan. Satan has power over the spiritual world. And it seems as though there may be a time where Satan is actually empowering somebody to do false exorcisms so that people will believe that person. They'll believe this false message. Does that make sense? You see that? It's false in the sense that it's not actually the Spirit's power working through because this person doesn't follow Jesus. They don't follow the truth. They follow a lie. Notice why people are led astray in verse 10. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the what? The truth. They refused to love the truth. So how do you know if the exorcism is real or if it's a false exorcism? Because of what the person is saying. What they're preaching. What they're teaching. The gospel that they believe. You know how to be duped by the enemy? Just believe the lie. You know how to insulate yourself from the enemy? Guard yourself with truth, with the truth of the word of God. Does God still people, does God still give people the gift of miracles, of exorcism? I, I don't know for sure. I haven't seen it. That would be an amazing gift. It's something that he's clearly done before and clearly would be an amazing thing. But more important is that we fill ourselves with the truth. And we love the truth. And so guard ourselves against all deception. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these gifts and how you have used them to bless the church of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would keep us from um, skepticism and feeling icky or whatever about these things that you have done in spades and and performed and, and brought glory to yourself through them. Lord, but may we be discerning. And may we be filled with the truth and not be carried away by falseness, but love the truth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.